Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Jesus had worked a lot of miracles among the people, but they were still not willing to have faith in him. This happened so that what the prophet Isaiah had said would come true. Lord, who has believed our message, and who has seen your mighty strength? The people could not have faith in Jesus, because Isaiah had also said, The Lord has blinded the eyes of the people, and he has made the people stubborn. He did this so that they could not see or understand, and so that they would not turn to the Lord and be healed. Isaiah said this because he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about him. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 41, Contemporary English Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you as 2021 gets underway. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're continuing our discussions about objections that are often raised against the existence of God. In this series, we're examining five specific objections that you often hear, and we're looking to see whether those objections are reasonable when you look at them closely. With us today is Doug Apple, who is the manager of the Wave 94 radio station in Tallahassee. In addition to doing a great job for all the Wave 94 listeners, Doug is a faithful student of the Bible, and he has thought deeply about his faith. This includes wanting to help everyone see that the Christian faith is a blessing for our minds as well as our souls. Today, Doug is going to help us take a detailed look at a common objection that is lodged against Christianity, and that is that a God like the one portrayed by the Bible is so different from us that it would be impossible for us to know anything about him. In other words, even if God exists, he would be unknowable. But before we get into the discussion, Doug, would you like to take a couple of minutes and tell us a little bit about your own faith journey? My own faith journey? Well, at the beginning of my serious walk with God, he planted a Bible verse deep into my heart, and it really made a huge difference. It's in Philippians 3, where it says, and I'm paraphrasing, One thing I do, forget what is behind and press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. First of all, it gave me permission to leave the past behind. If it was bad or sinful, I didn't have to wallow in it. And if it was good, I didn't take pride in it. Good, bad, or indifferent, I forget what is behind, which sets me free to press forward to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me to fulfill his calling on my life, to fulfill my part in the body of Christ. I've seen a lot of people over the years get stuck in the past or even return to the past in those former snares. But Jesus sets us free, and in Christ our future is always bright. 
And I'm so thankful God got that through my thick skull right at the outset of my serious walk with him. Forget what is behind and press on. Thank you, Doug. And just for the listener's benefit, after today, we expect Doug to be with us for the next few shows as we address more specific objections that are often raised about how we can be certain of God's existence. Before we begin examining the objection that it is impossible for human beings to truly know anything about a transcendent God, let's take a brief look back at what we discussed last time on Anchored by Truth. In that episode, we looked at the objection that because we can't perceive God with any of our physical senses, we have no evidence for God's existence. We noted several important points. First, God is the ultimate cause of everything that we see or know about in the universe. This includes not only the features of the physical universe, but also the personal attributes that we see present in human beings, such as the ability to perceive logical principles use reason to reach valid conclusions, and express ourselves through language. Right. It's important to remember that it's one thing to be able to explain the operation of something, but it's quite another to talk about its origin. All causes are known by their effects. Obviously, one of God's more spectacular effects is the creation of the visible universe, and God ordering that universe so it supports living creatures. If you try to do away with God as the creator of the universe, then you're forced to conclude that the universe is somehow self-existent. That changes the universe from being an effect of an omnipotent creator to being a self-existent cause. But if the universe is the cause of everything, then what is the universe's effect? There's no satisfactory answer to that question. No, there's not. Because if you tried to say that one part of the universe caused all the rest, then that part would functionally be God. Then as you put it last time, we'd be talking about God's address, not his existence. We also noted that functionally, an entirely self-existent universe isn't an atheistic universe. It's a pantheistic universe where God is all and all is God. But pantheism as a system of thought is self-defeating. Yes, anything that is self-existent would be eternal and unchanging. But obviously, individual elements of the universe experience considerable change. So those elements cannot simultaneously be part of an unchanging whole while they individually undergo change. So those observations all help make the point that R.D. introduced at the start of this series, that ultimately all supposed objections to God's existence wind up resting on statements, ideas, or propositions that are self-defeating. Or the objection must ignore an idea or proposition that is irresistibly true, or, as R.D. puts it, affirmed in the dissent. Just as a reminder, when we're talking about ideas or propositions that are affirmed in dissent, we mean that in order for someone to disagree with the proposition, they must use the proposition in their disagreement. An example that we've used on Anchored by Truth before is the statement, quote, human beings use language to communicate, unquote. The moment someone says, I disagree with that statement, they're using language to communicate their disagreement. Another example is the statement, quote, to acquire useful knowledge, it is necessary to separate truth from lies or errors, unquote. If someone disagrees with that statement, they certainly want us to accept their declaration of disagreement as being true. Furthermore, 
They believe that we need to accept their disagreement in order for us to have a correct view of reality, or in other words, to acquire a useful bit of knowledge. Otherwise, why express the disagreement at all? Therefore, they are using the premises contained in the statement even as they express their disagreement. This is more common in discussions about spiritual matters than you might think. So, it is imperative if we are going to seek truth from error. When it comes to knowing God, we must ensure that we are relying on truly reasonable premises or ideas, not on ones that just sound profound. I agree with that observation. Ultimately, the objection that we do not have any evidence that God exists because we can't see Him or hear Him relies on this premise. We can't be sure of the existence of anything we can't perceive with our five senses. But if that were true, most of the world couldn't be sure of the rest of the world's existence because most of us are going to spend our lives in a relatively small corner of the world. If I can only be sure of the existence of things I can directly perceive, then I could not be sure that India exists because I've never been there. But someone might say that you can see pictures or videos of India that you can see and hear. True enough. But how could I be sure that the pictures or videos weren't faked just to fool me? I couldn't. I'm not saying that I don't believe India exists. I do, and I'm confident in that belief. But I'm confident because of the weight of the evidence that supports that it exists, just as I'm confident that God exists because there's overwhelming evidence that God exists. The point is that the objector wants to create doubt about our knowledge of God by limiting the use of what evidence we can trust. But this is unreasonable. The idea that the only things I can know to be true are those that are perceivable by the senses cannot itself be perceived by sight, touch, hearing, etc. So the idea fails its own test. Again, it is self-defeating. Well, you're absolutely right that if the only things that are true are those I can perceive with my senses, no idea would ever be true. You can't perceive ideas with your senses, but you can evaluate them with your mind, and that is what we are recommending in the series, that people think carefully about the objections to God's existence. When they do, we believe they will find that they don't pass logical muster. I must recommend that anyone who would like to hear the entire discussion Just use your favorite podcast app and locate the episode of Anchored by Truth that we titled The Lord of Logic, I Can't See God. So, let's move on to our topic for today. Today, we want to examine an objection to God's existence that sounds very sophisticated when you first hear it. Like all objections to God's existence, however, the objection makes far less sense when you look at it in detail. Briefly stated, The objection is that even if God exists, God is so different from us, from people, that we can't know anything about such a God. In other words, the objection says that God is unknowable. So, where should we start when looking at this objection? Well, let's start by looking at the assumptions that stand behind that objection. Which are? There are at least four assumptions that are immediately apparent. First, to make the objection, the objector must believe they possess an awareness of how their minds work. If you believe that you're incapable of knowing something, then you must believe you understand how it's possible for you to know anything. Second, 
If the objector extends this inability to know anything about God to other people, which they are doing if they declare God to be unknowable, then they're claiming to not only know how they think, they're claiming to know how other people think. The claim that God is unknowable inarguably involves the objector claiming what other people know or are capable of knowing. Yikes. I think I see one problem already. When you claim to know that something is unknowable, you are essentially saying that you possess an awareness of the limits of knowledge of every person on the planet. That's quite a claim. Yes, it is. And we'll add more to that thought in a minute. A third assumption underlying the objection is that the objector possesses the capacity for reason and analysis because they're drawing conclusions from premises. Unless they possess the capacity for reason and analysis, it would be impossible for them to draw conclusions about anything. And fourth, they must believe they have some concept of who or what God is or is not. After all, the objector making the claim that God is unknowable must first possess some kind of a concept about what the word God means. It may be an extremely limited or rudimentary concept, but if the word God had no meaning to them at all, any statements using the word God would be completely unintelligible to them or anyone else. In other words, if I said something like, I don't know anything about Fergabran, then unless you and I know what Fergabran means, the statement is meaningless. And I, for one, have no idea what Fergabran means. <laughs> Neither do I. And that makes the point very well. If the word God does not generate some kind of a concept in their mind or in the mind of their listener, the statement that God is unknowable is meaningless. But no one who makes that statement actually thinks their statement is meaningless. So they must believe they possess some conceptual awareness about God before they make the statement. Well, those assumptions do seem to be inescapably linked to this objection. So let's examine those assumptions and see if any or all of them can withstand scrutiny. I think I see one problem immediately. Which is? Well, their basic assertion is self-refuting. They are saying that God is unknowable, but for that statement to have any meaning, the objector and their audience would both have to have some kind of conceptual awareness of God. So, they are claiming to know nothing about God, while simultaneously claiming they know enough about God to conclude that God is unknowable. So they believe that they know at least one thing about God, that God is so different from themselves or all of us that nothing more about God can be known. But if we can know one thing about God, why can't we know other things about God? Right. So the basic assertion is self-defeating. I would hasten to add, however, that Christians would agree with a restatement of this objection. Instead of saying that God is unknowable, Christians would agree and in fact would insist that God cannot be known comprehensively. But there's a huge difference between those two ideas. Christians would all agree that a finite being, man, cannot comprehensively understand an infinite being, God. But we can understand some things about God, and those things are meaningful to our lives. That's actually the whole point to the Bible. The Bible is God's special revelation to people. We can know true, meaningful things about God because God himself has chosen to reveal them to us. So that's a pretty devastating observation about this objection right off. 
But of course the Bible, God's revelation, is only meaningful because it is a true revelation. That's why it is so important for Christians to be able to help people understand how we can be sure that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. That's why on Anchored by Truth, we talk about the four lines of evidence that help demonstrate that the Bible is the Word of God. Those lines are the Bible's remarkable unity, reliable history, fulfilled prophecies, and the improved lives and destinies of millions who have read and had their hearts changed just by reading the Bible. We would encourage anyone who wants to know more about these lines of evidence to check out the almost 100 episodes of Anchored by Truth that are available for free on most of the major podcasting apps. But you think there are other problems with the assertion that God is unknowable. Yes. Another huge problem with this assertion is the observation you made earlier. When someone claims that God is unknowable, they're not only claiming the limits of their own knowledge, they're claiming to know what is possible for every other person who has ever lived or that ever will live can know. That's not just a startling claim, it's godlike. After all, who but an omniscient being could possess knowledge about what every human being does know or could know? It's one thing to declare one's own ignorance, but it's another to declare the ignorance of the entire race. It's not only entirely possible, but it's entirely reasonable to think that other people will know and understand things that we don't. So even if the objector thinks that it is impossible for them to know anything meaningful or true about God, they have absolutely no reason to believe that their gap is shared by any, much less all, of their neighbors. This means that, at best, the claim that God is unknowable would be a classic case of making a statement that's so overly broad that it sacrifices any claim to being reasonable. But there's another fundamental issue about this objection as well. The whole idea that how the objector thinks says anything about how other people think is an application of what's termed the principle of analogy. The principle of analogy is the idea that similarities between different entities allow us to draw inferences or form conclusions about causes and effects that apply to those entities. An analogy, of course, is just making a comparison between different things as a way of helping people understand them better. The old adage, life is like a box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get, is an analogy. Analogies help us develop understanding by allowing us to use familiarity with one thing to understand ideas about something else. Life isn't a box of chocolates, but the idea that unexpected things occur to us in life is similar to the fact that we sometimes get the caramel center when we were hoping for the nut when we were fishing around in that chocolate box. That's why it's a good idea to not throw away the sheet that tells you which chocolate is in which little paper square. Anyway, when the objector thinks that all people have similar ways of thinking, the objector is applying the principle of analogy to make the objection. And that application is probably a valid application. While all human beings are different individuals, there is enough commonality among them to think, no pun intended, that there are similarities in how we all think. In other words, the objector is accepting the validity of the principle of analogy. But the objector is denying the validity of the principle of analogy when they say it can't be used to give human beings true information about God. 
And that's because most theologians would argue that the way we know things about God is analogical. We all know that there is a huge difference between men and God, but the fact that there are huge differences does not mean that there are no similarities at all, does it? Because there are distinct similarities. God possesses a will and volition, and so do people. God has ethical standards, and so do people. God experiences emotions, and so do people. God is creative, and so are people. Some more than others. And that helps to reinforce the basic point. Some people are very creative. Others are less so. Not all people are identical, even though we all belong to the same species. Yet we can come to valid conclusions about other people by knowing that there are similarities among us. Likewise, even though God is a completely different order of being, in creating us, God ensured that there were enough points of correspondence so that we could develop enough awareness about Him to sustain a relationship with Him, if we will apply ourselves to that relationship. So what you're saying is that the objector who says that God is unknowable is willing to accept the validity of the principle of analogy when it comes to people, but the objector denies it when it comes to thoughts about God. What if the objector says that making that distinction is reasonable? Then it would be fair to ask the objector the basis for making the distinction. The most common explanation would be that men and God are different kind of beings, which is true. But dogs, cats, and human beings are also different kinds of beings, yet millions of pet owners would tell you they can tell when their pet is happy, sad, sick, or feeling a variety of other emotions. The pet owner can do this because they know what it is to feel happy or sick, so they can analogically use their experience to understand the condition of their pet. So, just because different kinds of beings are involved does not invalidate the applicability of the principle of analogy, and we know that. Moreover, it would also be fair to ask the objector what evidence they're using to determine that the principle is applicable in one instance, but not in the other. So, if the objector tried to argue that the evidence they are using arises from the nature of God, they would again be invalidating their basic assertion, which is that God is unknowable. And if the evidence they cited was from the distinction between people and God, they would be making a circular argument because they would be assuming the conclusion of the very point under discussion. Exactly. So the objection to God's existence, that God is so different from mankind that God is unknowable, relies on arguments that are self-defeating. The objector is claiming to possess a concept of God that is sufficiently clear for the objector to know that God is very different from mankind, while also declaring that possession of the concept is impossible. Further, the objector must simultaneously accept the principle of analogy in part of their reasoning while rejecting it in another. Either of these difficulties is fatal to validity of the objection. This means the objection really is an unsupported assertion. Any evidence developed to support the fact that God is different from man winds up being evidence that we can know something about God and that we can have sufficient confidence in that knowledge to draw a conclusion from it. Any assertions that how the objector thinks must apply to all other people who have ever lived makes a claim that would only be reasonable if the objector themselves possess godlike knowledge. As such, accepting the objection would mean that the objector is exercising faith in a proposition that has little to no merit.
Now, Christians have no problem with the concept of exercising faith, but we often emphasize on Anchored by Truth that faith in the Bible and faith in Jesus is a faith that is supported by logic, reason, and evidence. But in this case, not only is the objection not supported by logic, reason, and evidence, but logic, reason, and evidence actually demonstrate that the objection is without a reasonable foundation. Yes. Like all objections that deny God's existence on first blush, this objection sounds entirely reasonable. But when you carefully examine the inescapable assumptions that are present in the objection, you find that they can't survive careful scrutiny. Now, it's important to understand that there is absolutely nothing wrong with people raising this kind of a concern, either as a new Christian or as a sincere skeptic. Jesus never asked any of his followers to simply accept his claims to being the Son of God based solely on his assertion. Jesus was willing to answer reasonable questions. We should be prepared to do so as well, and that's the biggest reason I wanted to be part of this series of discussions on Anchored by Truth. We agree. Now, before we finish for today, we want to remind the listeners of something that we've mentioned before during this Lord of Logic series on Anchored by Truth. We know that this whole line of reasoning can seem pretty abstract, and many people may wonder why it matters. After all, we can live our lives, go to our jobs, prepare meals, and enjoy sports or entertainment, and never have to deal with these kinds of questions. But for Christians, We are keenly aware that we live on this earth for a matter of decades, maybe in rare cases, a little more than a century. But we will live in heaven for an eternity. So, our focus needs to remain on how to help our loved ones, families, and friends understand that. There has been a concerted attack on the most foundational notion in the Bible, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth for the last couple of centuries. The bad news is that it has had an effect. Dispensing with God has dispossessed countless people of their future being in heaven. If we are going to reclaim the future of our country and the future of our kids, we have to equip them with the tools to break through the huge volume of disinformation that is going to come at them throughout their entire lives. Well, all this sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer of confession for the times that we have sinned, because the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us for those sins. Prayer of Corporate Confession Father, perfect in justice, holy in all ways, we stand before you to declare that we know you are a great powerful, and just God. Before time began marking the rise, decline, and coming renewal of creation, you established the laws to govern all seasons and creatures. Your laws are perfect because you are perfect. Lord, we acknowledge today that we have sinned and fallen short of your expectations. We know that we have done this of our own volition that our transgressions are not caused by anything that you have done or failed to do. As you forgive us, help us to freely forgive those who offend us when they ask for pardon. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters with repentant hearts 
as readily as you embrace us. We can only do so by knowing the gracious love that you brought to us when Christ came and died for us. He tore apart the veil between your people and you, sent the Spirit to refresh our souls, and so it is in his precious name that we ask for mercy, pardon, and a readiness to serve you. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is. Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books. Have you ever had trouble explaining to a friend or relative why you believe the Bible is true and trustworthy? If so, you're not alone. That's why every Tuesday morning on Wave FM, we discuss how you can be assured that the Bible that you trust is the inspired Word of God. Join us on Tuesdays at 11.30 a.m. for an opportunity to grow your faith, deepen your confidence, and learn that the Bible really can give you victory in Jesus.